Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. And here we have in the book of Joshua, it's about entering into the promised land. Exodus was about coming out of Egypt. But Joshua is about entering into the promised land. And though Israel had been out of Egypt for 40 years, they had never entered into the promised land, entered into the rest. And we'll talk about that rest. It'll be mentioned in our text later on. But they never entered in. But here, Joshua has the privilege to bring the children of Israel into the promised land. And he is reminded by God and some of his warriors four times in chapter 1 to be strong and of good courage. Now, some biblical scholars, they believe that a Deuteronomist composed not only Joshua, but Judges, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings. And they believe that this is the case because uh, each book plays off of, even from the book of Deuteronomy, we have coinciding verses that play into Joshua, Joshua into Judges, Judges into First and Second Samuels, Samuel, and we have even uh, verses that they are ending, but they're beginning and they're connecting. And so it's believed that this may have been compiled during Israel's captivity in Babylon that began in 586 B.C. It lasted for 70 years because of their sin against the Lord. God cast them out of the land for 70 years as prophesied by Jeremiah. So we know that they went into captivity, the fall of the temple and Jerusalem the first time in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians, which brings us to 516 B.C. when they were finally freed by the king of the Medes and the Persians. And so somewhere in between that, they date this about 550 B.C., that these books were composed Now, whether it was composed in Babylon or somewhere else, we can't really know that for sure. But they have for years been known as the former prophets. And that is Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, known as the former prophets. And G.W. Winham listed out five themes that tie the former prophets back to the book of Deuteronomy and the last book of the Pentateuch. And these are the five things. The holy war conquest, number one. Number two, the distribution of the land. Number three, the unity of all Israel. Number four, Joshua's secession of Moses. And number five, Israel's relationship to the covenant God. So God, the creator of the whole earth and all that is in it, had gifted the land to Abraham and to his descendants. And though it had been over 600 years since God first came to Abraham, God now has the descendants of Abraham ready to occupy the promised land. 
So a key verse, and I like to do this, especially on the midweek studies as we go through the Old Testament here. I look for a key verse, and verse 9 of Joshua chapter 1, it says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so that will be a not only a key verse for chapter 1, but really the life of Joshua from this point forward. The death of Moses brought significant change to Israel. From Joshua's perspective, it must have seemed overwhelming because for 40 years, Israel had Moses, a God-ordained leader over the nation of Israel, a man whom the Lord spoke to face to face, according to Exodus 33:11. A man who had worked many great miracles and wonders among the people, and now he's dead. And God tells Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verse 2, to arise and go. So in verses 1 and 2, it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Joshua's name meant Jehovah is salvation. It was actually a name that Moses gave to him. It wasn't his given name by his parents. And it's also the Hebrew name that, if translated into the Greek, would be Jesus. And so Joshua, Jehovah is salvation. Jesus, if we would take it in the Greek. And he becomes a type of the Savior for Israel at that time, just as Moses was. We find many prototypes of the coming Messiah and many of the people from the Old Testament period. But Joshua here is called Moses' assistant, and he was the one who we are first introduced to him in Exodus 17. He was a warrior. He went and fought against the Amalekites. And though he had victory, he had not distinguished the Amalekites. They were still there to trouble the people. And God gave a promise to Joshua that I will deal with this. You did your part. I will deal with your enemy. And I'll take care of it in the future. So he began as a great warrior. He became an assistant to Moses. He went up with Moses on the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, partway. As Moses went up all the way, Joshua went up partway and waited for Moses when Moses was there on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Later on, Moses, when he would leave the tabernacle of the Lord or the tent of meeting and return to the camp, it tells us of Joshua in Exodus 33:11 that he did not depart from the tabernacle of the Lord. So he was near the house of God. He was called one of Moses' choice men in Numbers 11:28, And it was Joshua and Caleb who stood up against the other 10 spies as Joshua and Caleb were numbered among the 12 spies who tried to encourage the people of Israel to enter into the promised land 40 years earlier and they nearly got stoned to death for trying to do so. 
Moreover, Moses laid hands upon Joshua and before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation to inaugurate him as Israel's next leader in Numbers 27:19. Probably one of the most telling things of Joshua's life from the book of Deuteronomy is this. Deuteronomy 34:9, Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid hands on him, so the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So he's a man that was filled with the spirit of wisdom. And now it's his turn to lead. And it had to be challenging to take over for Moses. And though Israel's next leader, Joshua would not lead like Moses. Moses, as I said earlier, was a friend of God. He spoke with the Lord face to face. Joshua, to determine the will of God, would have to go to the priest. And the priest would use the Urim, according to Numbers 27:21, to discern the word of God. And yet it reminds us that God works differently and uniquely in each of our lives. And whether we're under new leadership or um, we're coming in a change, maybe in ministry, we shouldn't judge totally by the past for the standard and the new work that God wants to do in the present. So Joshua here, in verses 1 and 2, he's commanded by the Lord to arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. In verses 3 and 4, God set boundaries to the promised land. I find this so interesting. I was reading one of the commentaries today, and uh, the commentator kept referring to this area as Palestine, and it is in the news today, since, especially since October 7th of last year when Hamas came into Israel and raped and murdered and killed and kidnapped several Israelis, over 1,400 dying and uh, beginning the war that now is ongoing in Gaza with Israel trying to eliminate Hamas. That's their goal. And this commentator that I was reading kept referring to Israel as Palestine. And uh, it is referred to that, Palestinian people, and what people neglect to understand, and even this commentator. And probably if I turn to the back of the maps in my Bible, it will list it as Palestine because that had been a custom for years to do. And uh, let's see. No, it calls it Israel. Way to go. My old 1993 New King James Bible. <laughs> so they got it right back in then. So what happened in 134 A.D., Hadrian was the emperor of Rome at that time. And although Israel had been destroyed and the temple tore down by Titicus in uh, 70 A.D., Israel remained in the land, but they remained often in rebellion. And finally, the emperor of Rome got so tired of it that he not only he destroyed Israel, attacked, warred against them, destroyed all their genealogy, 
remove them from the land of Israel and then change the name of Israel to Palestine as a representative of Israel's long enemy, the Philistines. And so that was not always the name of the land. Only We can only tie it back to 134 A.D. and it was given to them by the Emperor Hadrian of Rome. And yet, even when Israel first came back to the land, they were the ones, before Israel became a state again, who were called the Palestinians. And now, of course, that is being changed. So God gave boundaries. And this is the point I'm trying to make, that God gave the boundaries. Here, in verses 3 through 4, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. As I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. So people today consider the, the land of Israel. Some don't even consider it the land of Israel, as we've discovered over the last few months. But if they think about Israel prior to October 7th, they would say it's that area that's designated by the state of Israel that came into existence on May 14, 1948. That is a little larger than it was in 1948 because of the Six-Day War, um, but that it's not much larger than the area of New Jersey or Lake Michigan. But what God promised is much larger. As we read through here, the great river Euphrates takes it all the way over to Iraq. It's much of a portion of the Middle East today. And it's a promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15, 18 through 21. And God tied it to the great river of Egypt there, to the river Euphrates, and then listed out these nations that Israel would conquer during that time. God passed on this promise to Abraham's descendants, to Isaac, to Jacob, and then to the 12 tribes of Israel. And even after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, the promise for the conquest of the land was still theirs. In Genesis 15, 13 through 16, God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge, but afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites have not yet been completed. So from the time of God giving this pledge to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, over 600 years had passed. Israel did spend 430 years. They came out According to the word of God, 430 years to the day that they entered in, they came out of the land of Egypt with great possessions, but they did not enter in. The first generation that came out did not have the faith to enter into the promised land. So God judged them for the 40 days that the 12 spies were in the promised land. They spent a year for every day. That first generation died in the wilderness. Now their children Technically, the nine and a half tribes of Israel are ready to enter in and occupy the land. The other tribes, 
the tribe of Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had already been allotted their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River, but their soldiers would go in and fight with Israel, as we'll learn over the next few weeks, until all of Israel gained their inheritance. So God gave boundaries, and the boundary that God gave to Israel is much larger than the land that we look at today. God speaks about boundaries in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 26 and 27, where the Lord said, And he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times, the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Paul there speaking to the Athenians, he reminded them that God has set boundaries in pre-appointed times. The hope is that people would grope for the Lord, that the people would be saved. But God set boundaries in our own life as well for Israel, for our church, for our individuals, his families. Like Israel, we often fail to obtain the promises of God. We lack the faith to take the steps of faith needed to obtain these promises. Israel's parents lack this type of faith. Now the children will be tested to see if they have the faith to enter in. Five through nine, the Lord continues to talk to Joshua. He says, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people I shall divide is an inheritance, the land which I swore to your fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that I, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it from the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So Joshua, we've already established, he's a warrior, a servant of Moses, a believer. Later on in Joshua 24, we discover he's a father. As he says in Joshua 24:15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And still God gives Joshua three specific promises. First, that no man would be able to stand against him all the days of his life. Second, that Yahweh would be with Joshua as he had been with Moses. Third, that Yahweh would never leave nor forsake him. And Joshua's Response to these truths was for him to be strong and of good courage. In fact, it said very courageous. And apparently Joshua needed to hear these words. And I think sometimes we need to hear such words as well. And we have been given similar promises by Jesus to his church. In Romans 8.31, the Lord says, nothing can stand against us. 8.31 in verse 37 of 
The book of Romans says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Number two, that he will be with you. And Jesus said in the second half of Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And number three, that he will never leave us in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. And the author of Hebrew actually referring back to Joshua 1, verse 5 in this section. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's found in chapter 1, verse 5 of Joshua. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 118, verse 6. So we have similar promises that we are not Joshua. We are not um, commanded by the Lord to enter in and to make war. There is a battle raging on in this world. Yes, Christ is the victor of that war. He has paid the price. Ultimately, of our sin upon the cross, but he hasn't claimed the prize yet. He's still yet not to return the second time. So we're waiting for that second return. And while we wait, we are in a war zone. And so we need to remember that in this war zone, the Lord has promised nothing can stand against us. He will be with us. He will never leave us. So Joshua commanded Israel in verses 10 through 18, but first 10 and 11, he commands his officers. Joshua commanded the officers of the people saying, pass through the camp, command the people saying, prepare for provisions for yourself for within three days, you will cross over this Jordan to go in and possess the land, which the Lord your God has given you to possess. So Israel's army takes three days to ready themselves and their families. They, they were all crossing over. The only ones who did not cross over at this time was the probably some of the older sons and the children and the wives and of the two and a half tribes that took their inheritance on the east side of the river, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh as their men of war would cross over with Israel. But they were to ready themselves, prepare the needed supplies. They were going to be on the move. They've been waiting for 40 years to take this step. And now the time was upon them. And sometimes, to me, it's significant in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Over and over again, we find that three days is often mentioned. Here we have a three-day mention. Prepare yourself in three days. You're going to cross over. We also know that in a similar way, Jesus prepared his disciples in the three-plus years of ministry. And the Apostle Paul, after he came to faith, he immediately did not go back to Jerusalem. But Galatians 1, 17 and 18 tells us that he spent three years in Arabia before returning to Jerusalem. So three Years, three days, time passes. Last Sunday I'd mentioned my own 11 years from the call 
until I was ordained here as the pastor at CCLV. And uh, even a significant three days is that of Abraham. When the Lord told him to take his son, his only son, and to go to a mountain that I will show you. And Abraham went on a three-day journey. On the third day, the Lord showed him the mountain, Mount Moriah. And I believe the Lord showed him the place where not only Abraham was willing to offer up his only son, Isaac, but the place where God offered his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, on the third day. Abraham went to that mountain. On the third day, Yahweh descended on Mount Sinai after Israel arrived there after the Exodus. And on the third day, Jesus resurrected from the grave. So the number three, uh, there's a lot that can be studied about that, but I find it interesting when I come across these three-day statements because it reminds us of the Lord and his own three days in the heart of this earth. Now Joshua's command to the two and a half tribes, he reminds them of their promise to Moses in verses 12 through 15, the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh. Joshua spoke saying, remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you saying, the Lord your God is giving you rest and giving you this land. Your wives and your little ones, your livestock will remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your brethren armed with all your mighty men of valor and help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest that he gave you, that they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God has given them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise." So the tribes of Reuben and Gad and half-tribe Manasseh, they had already taken possession of the land on the east side of the Jordan River, that of the kings, that of Sion, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. And it was an area where it tells us in Scripture that this group of tribes had many cattle, and this was an area that had highlands, of some over 2,000 feet, uh, plenty of rainfall, good place for their flocks and herds. And they received their promise. It was not what God had intended. And if we play this out through Scripture, we'll discover that uh, some of the first tribes that would go into captivity would be the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They took their possession, not in the promised land proper. But God gave them nonetheless this place, and it became their place of rest. But they had promised Moses, and Moses commanded them in Numbers 32, that if you do this, you have to go in with your brothers, and you have to allow your brothers to gain their rest, their place in the promised land as well. And they promised that they would do this. In fact, Moses said, if you do not do this, this will be sin against you and God will judge you for this sin. So until the Lord has given your brother rest. Now, true rest from the Lord comes 
Well, in Exodus 33:14, God promised Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This is talking about entering into the promised land. And Jesus promised the church in Matthew 11:28 through 30 saying, come to me all you labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So they would have land rest, a temporal rest in the land of promise. Ultimately, that rest comes to us through Christ Jesus and the salvation he affords us. So the two and a half tribes being commissioned and reminded by Joshua, their role in the conquest of the promised land, they said in response to Joshua 16 through 18, so they answered Joshua saying, all that you commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, we so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words, in all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. So this is the fourth time in chapter 1 that Joshua, three times by God himself, once by a group of his soldiers, reminding him, be strong and of good courage. One time, be strong and be very courageous. In Joshua's case, he was taking on a new ministry role. And he needed that confirmation. And the Lord gave it to him four times. I will be with you. I will not leave you. Wherever your feet tread upon this land, I will give this land to you. Only be strong and of good courage. And God confirmed that to him. And others came along and said the same thing to him. And I think sometimes when we get in a situation where there's changes in our life. Sometimes it's good that we find comfort in the Word of God. Maybe it's a verse of Scripture that helps direct our path. I had mentioned last Sunday in a little bit of my own testimony when the Lord called me that He used Romans 10:14 and the words, and how can they hear without a preacher to uh, bring the call of God that I would preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That became a confirmation for me. But there were others who confirmed that calling, came alongside Lily, one of the great confirmers of that calling. In the year that we were semi-preparing to go out to California, I was just really in a, a state of unrest. And I, I wasn't sure really the direction that that my life should go. And things weren't always working out as planned. And when things didn't work out as planned here in Illinois, my beloved wife would have one response. That's because we're supposed to be in California. And I kept hearing that enough that I was finally convinced we were supposed to be in California. And we did go. Sometimes we need that confirmation. It can come from the Lord. It can come from prayer. It can come from his word, but also from others. And Joshua gets it from the Lord himself and from others. 
to be strong and courageous, given Joshua good reason to have strength and courage because God had already promised him, every place the sole of your foot would tread upon, I have given it to you. So Joshua's command to be strong and of good courage came with wonderful promises. Here's four of them. That he would divide the inheritance of the land among the children of Israel. Chapter 1, verse 6. Number two, that God would make him prosperous and give him good success if he observed all the law and meditated upon it day and night. Chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. In verse 9, that the Lord was going to be with him wherever he goes. In chapter, or verse 18, that the men promised to heed all the words and his commands. So he'd been given both promises by the Lord and by others to give him reason to be of good courage and to be strong. We need to know that sometimes God takes time. I believe he always does. Takes time to prepare us for the work that he has called us to. Therefore, like Joshua, it is our responsibility sometimes to step out in faith. But while we step out in faith, we're to continue to meditate and to observe the word of God that he has given us, that our own paths might prosper, knowing that Jesus is with us and has promised to never leave us. Well, in chapter 2, key verse for me is found in verse 11. It tells us, And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you, for the Lord your God. He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So these words spoken by Rahab, a prostitute from the town of Jericho, and at that point, possibly not yet a believer in the God of Israel, but she's well on her way. Come to chapter 2, we think about Rahab, and I thought about this section and originally giving it a title of a woman of great faith. And then I thought, no, Rahab was a woman of extraordinary faith. And then I kind of came down to this, and I titled chapter 2, A God-Fearing Faith. When fearful, when we can have anxiety, it can cause uh, by either the presence of danger or even the thought of danger, we can find ourselves in a place of fear. And yet in the Bible, there is also the fear of God, which speaks about our reverence and awe of him. And I believe that Rahab had both of these fears. She had a fear of Israel coming and what they would do to her people, but also she had a greater fear and that of God. And she took action as a result of that fear. In verses 1 through 7, the word tells us, Joshua chapter 2, Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from the Acacia Grove, to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of the harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, the men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you. 
who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. And so she said, yes, the men came to me, but I do not know where they were from or did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. And the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. So Joshua sent out two spies, especially, he said, to Jericho. No doubt they would get military analysis of the city, of their enemy. But they also would discover upon their arrival that the fear of the Lord, actually they used the word terror of the Lord, had already fallen upon the people. Some people like to condemn this portion of scripture because of Rahab in her espionage, the lies that she told protecting the spies. And while we might argue that Rahab was not a believer yet, she certainly was a God-fearer and surely was seeking God's protection for herself and her family, as we'll discover. As for the spies lodging at a prostitute's house, well, it normally wouldn't have brought much attention considering that men would often be seen frequently in that place. But probably because of Israel being camped on the east side of the river, the terror of the Lord being upon the people there in Jericho, they were on heightened alert. On this occasion, the two Israelis were recognized. They were sought for by Jericho's king. And Rahab lied to protect the men. For she had an understanding that God was working in behalf of Israel. Now the Bible does tell us in Romans 13.1, and this is a verse over the last few years that have been repeated a number of times in the church and outside of the church, some people trying to tell the church what they should do, trying to remind them what the Word of God says, maybe misapplying the God, God's Word to this, and in within the church, some saying that everything the government tells us we should do, we should do. Because Romans 13, 1 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And even Peter likewise wrote concerning governing authorities, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15. Therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now the Bible clearly teaches us that we are to render taxes. I hate it. Every April 15th when it rolls around because it's so expensive. (laughs) especially here in Illinois. 
So it's not fun, but render to Caesar that which is Caesar. Jesus taught us that. Taxes, custom, fear, honor to those in authority over us. However, the one exception to this rule, when man's law contradicts God's law. Now, giving taxes has nothing to do with contradicting God's law. But we were given an example of this in Acts 4, verses 18 and 19. When the apostles were commanded, Peter and John, not to speak in the name or teach in the name of Jesus any longer, they responded, Acts 4.19, Peter and John answered and said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you or more than to God, you judge. They were going to listen to God. So the only time we're exempt from following the commands of man's government is when man's law opposed the laws of God. In Rahab's case, for her to deliver the two Israeli spies would have meant certain death to them, but ultimately death to her and to her family. She is seeking not only life for herself, but also for her family. As the freedom that we grew up here in the United States knowing is rapidly being stripped away, there may come a time where we will have to take a stand that goes against the governing authority like Rahab, Peter, John. However, may I remind you that when Paul wrote, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, Romans 13.1, that Nero was the emperor of Rome and Nero greatly troubled the Lord's church soon after that time. But one of these heroes in World War II was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived from February 4th, 1906 to April 9th, 1945 when he was executed by the Germans. He was a pastor, a professor, a theologian, and a spy. In 1939, Bonhoeffer was invited to give guest lectures in the United States. However, his trip was overshadowed by this looming international crisis, what was going on in Germany. Finally, Bonhoeffer cut his trip short, returned to Germany with these words. I realize that I've made a mistake by coming to the United States. I must stand by the Christians of Germany during this difficult time in our nation's history. I will have no right to participate in the reestablishment of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share this time of trial with my people. So he could have wrote out the war as a teaching professor in New York here in the United States, but he chose to return to Germany. After he returned he continued to work with the underground until 1940. He made con maintained contact with the military resistance through his brother-in-law. He accepted an appointment with intelligence of the Germans. He was supposed to be officially to defend against espionage, but actually, unofficially, Bonhoeffer exploited his position to give report reports to the Allies. On April 5th, 1933, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was arrested by the Gestapo. He was jailed in Berlin for two years without trial. Wow, being in jail without trial 
for a number of years. It's happening in our country right now for some. During this period, he wrote most of his theological works. And then April 5th, 1945, Adolf Hitler ordered an execution of all the conspirators. Of July 20th, 1944, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged by the SS on the morning of April 9th, 1945, just one month before Germany surrendered to the Allied forces. And although we probably will not have to risk our lives in espionage like that of the Israeli spies of Rahab of Bonhoeffer, we are called to stand and to do what's right in the sight of God in the days that we live in to occupy the possession that God has given to us. So Rahab's extraordinary faith, 9 through 14, it says, Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, for you when you came out of Egypt. This is 40 years earlier. And it was still on their minds, the enemies. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our heart melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and above and on the earth beneath. So this is a pagan harlot, a woman no doubt raised to worship other gods who has now become a God-fearer and has now acknowledged that the Lord God is the God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Verse 12, Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered and said, Our lives for yours. If none of you tell of this business of ours, it shall be when the Lord has given us the land, we will deal kindly and truly with you. So first we find the fear that was associated with the presence of Israel across the Jordan River, but also because they had heard what the Lord had done in Egypt some 40 years earlier, how he dried up the Red Sea. And, and just in a few days, God would dry up the Jordan at flood stage and do a similar miracle right in their sight. So they were fearful already when they saw the, would see the Jordan dry up. No doubt their fear would even melt their hearts more so. They had heard these things. Their hearts melted. They had no more courage because of Israel. And Rahab had a legitimate fear. But her fear did not lead her to inaction, but action. Proverbs 14.27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Now second, Rahab knew who was behind Israel's great strength. She had heard how the Lord had worked in Israel's behalf. She confessed that the Lord, their God, the God of Israel, was the God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And 
Rahab's God-fearing faith moved her to take the two spies to hide them, to plead not only for her life, but for the life of her family, that they might be saved amid the coming destruction. And this salvation came at the signal of a scarlet cord. Verses 15 through 21, she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. And she dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountains, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days. There's another three days for you. Hide there three days, and the pursuers have returned. Afterwards, you may go your way. Verse 17, So the men said to her, We will be blameless if this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come to the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. Unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, all the father's house into your own home, it shall be whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on them. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free of your oath, which you have made us swear. And so she said, verse 21, according to your words, so it be it. And she went and sent them away. They departed and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. So Rahab hung that scarlet cord in the window. Her house was on the city wall. And you will read of the conquest of Jericho, all the walls falling out. Apparently all the walls except for one section where Rahab's house was, where that cord was bound. And they would be saved. Not only Rahab, but everyone who was in the house. It reminded me instantly of the first Passover there in Egypt 40 years earlier. When God came through with the 10th plague in Egypt and it was the death of the firstborn except on the houses where the blood of the lamb had been slain and its blood has been painted on the lintel and the two doorposts of the homes, then the death angel would pass over those homes and the firstborn would live of both man and animal. But if the blood was not painted on the lintel, of the house and the two doorposts, then death would come to that house. So very similar, the scarlet cord would represent life to those who were in that house. In much the same way, we must apply the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, according to John 1.29. Jesus in 1 John 1.7 tells us, by the blood of Jesus Christ, he cleanses us from all sin. And Jesus thus becomes our lifeline from certain death for us individually and, Lord willing, for our whole family. So the spies report back, verses 22 through 24. They departed and went to the mountain. They stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all the way, all along the way, but did not find them. Verse 23 So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, crossed over, and they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, told him of all that befallen them. 
Verse 24, And Joshua said, Truly, the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. So recognizing that Yahweh had already delivered their enemies into their hands, God already said so, and now Joshua gets confirmation from the two spies by the words of their enemies. It was all that Israel needed to go forward in faith in accordance to God's word to occupy the land. Like Rahab, may our faith in the Lord move us to action, not fear keeping us in inaction, but faith moving us to action that would cause us to wholly put our faith in Christ and him alone. Rahab is mentioned three times in the New Testament, and I'll close just by referencing these three verses. First of all, she is found in the genealogy of Jesus Christ of Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. It says, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. So here you have a pagan woman from Jericho who happened to be a prostitute who took a bold step of faith that came into the family line of not only King David, but ultimately Christ Jesus himself. In Hebrews 11.31, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with faith or with peace. So in the closing section of Hebrews 11, Rahab is the only woman that's mentioned among other great heroes of faith. And they just uh, really, Rahab is the last one that really is explained. Then they rattle off several names and then they go into detail, but without applying any specific names. They're in Hebrew 11, the roll call of faith as it's been referred to. Rahab is the only woman mentioned in these last closing names of faith, mentioned along with Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. So she falls into great company as a woman of extraordinary faith, as I said earlier at the beginning of the message. And finally, James 2, 25 and 26. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot? also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So here James talking about the importance of putting works alongside our faith. He uses Rahab as the example. She became a person of faith, believing that God created the heavens and the earth, but also acted upon that belief And not only saved her own family, or herself, but her whole family that was in the home with her. Pastor Chuck said, of faith and works, and we'll close with this. No man will ever be able to move to action without faith. And no man's faith is genuine unless it moves him to action. There are two oars in a rowing boat. Only one will lead you in circles. It takes two oars to get you any place. Faith and works are companions. 
They work together. Faith produces works, and the works demonstrates the genuineness of the faith. Pastor Chuck Smith. And in the days that we live in, may we have the faith of Rahab that moves us to action that we and our families might be saved. And Father, we thank you so much for your word tonight. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to bless the teaching of your word to our souls. And as we now begin this study in the book of Joshua, may the conquest of Israel in the promised land, the feats of Joshua and others like Caleb and many others who will be named, may it give us courage, Lord, in our own day and age that we would be like Rahab, not only a God-fearer, but one who is moved by faith to action, that we might see you do great things for us personally, for our families, for this church, for our nation. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.